Wee wee, don't tell me you're at mountain lakes with all of your friends. Wee wee, don't tell me you're gonna start talking about craft beer again. We're cracking wise on random craft beer news. Hanging out with brewers, owners, and monsters doing interviews. It's the wee wee shows, the wee wee shows, the wee wee shows, the wee wee shows. From the brew house stage at Mountain Lakes Brewing Company in downtown Spokane, Washington, this is Wheat Wheat Don't Tell Me, Spokane's craft beer live audience show and podcast. When Santa asked me what I wanted for Christmas, I told him I wanted an oven that was powered by little elves that were actually clones of me. Santa told me he had never heard of such a thing. I said, Santa, you've never heard of a microdave? <laughs> I'm Dave Basaraba, and here, as always, is your host, Chris Sindrick. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, everybody. I have a good feeling about tonight's show. It's been a long time coming that we've talked about bringing local farmers on Wheat Wheat, and here we are. Yes, Matt Holliker from Holliker Farms and Chris and Nate Riggers from Clearwater Farms are our special guests tonight. And as always, I'm joined by Dave Basaraba and Tim Hilton of Mountain Lakes Brewing Company. Well, guys, what's the latest news with... Uh, Mountain Lakes and the Spokane craft beer scene. Uh, one thing, Chris, we brewed beer today. That was cool. Oh, yep. Okay, something special. Yeah, yeah. We did a we did an Imperial Red for the upcoming uh, Leicester Cup competition, uh, and we are par uh, partnering on uh, this collaboration with Paramore Brewing Company. So this round of Leicester Cup coming up for winter 2022 is supposed to be a collab in the red style. Nice. And so then you've got the same breweries that are traditionally in the Leicester Cup and then six additional breweries that are partnering with, uh, with them. Is that exactly right? Exactly right. That's nice. correct, yeah. Very cool. Yep. And then do who's, uh, who's partnering? Do you know a couple of the people? I know some. Of, so uh, we're brewing with Paramore, as Dave said. Um, I know, um, let's see, Grain Shed is brewing with Golden Handle Project. Uh, Bellwether is brewing with uh, No Drought. A uh, new tap tap room in the valley. Uh, Humble Abode is brewing with Yaya. Um, I know uh, Matt Hansen at Whistlepunk is brewing with a uh, new brewery coming in, uh, Common. Oh, Common Language. Common Language. Right, okay. And then Black Label, I don't know. I, I can't remember who Black Label is okay. brewing with. Right, very so, yeah. good. Cool. Should be pretty good. Nice. Well, to start the show off, we like to ask important people who work in the craft beer industry questions about what they do and how they do it, and it's called Not My Beer. Please welcome tonight's Not My Beer guests from Holliker and Clearwater Farms, as well as Coldstream Malt and Grain Company, Matt Holliker and Chris and Nate Riggers. Well, welcome to the show, Matt, Chris, and Nate. It's great to have you on the show. I thought maybe to get started, um, you both come from uh, farms that have been in the family for generations. Maybe we could we could start there. Could you tell us a little bit about the Holliker and Riggers family farm histories and a little bit of your stories? So Holliker Farms is a fourth-generation farm. Uh, we began in Roselia, Washington. Um, and my, my family moved to the Laytaw, Washington area um, over the years. And so we've been in Laytaw uh, since I was born. My, my dad's been farming. I started about seven years ago. And um, anyways, our farm kind of 
you know, it's traditional um, wheat farm. Uh, we we grow winter wheat, spring cereals, and legumes. And uh, up until seven years ago, in a pretty conventional farming system, and we've transitioned to direct seeding and more conservation efforts. But um, yeah, like I said, started in Roselia, Washington, four generations ago. So nice. Wow. Uh, yeah, I think I'll let Dad start with the history of our farm because he's been around a little longer than me. So my great-grandfather, Frederick Riggers, um, emigrated to the United States in the 1890s. He was a twin. He was um, the second twin. His name was Frederick Wilhelm, and his older twin brother's name was Wilhelm Frederick. No joke. They were born in Germany near, near Hamburg in about 1860. My great-grandfather was the second of the two sons. And in Germany at that time, the oldest male child got the farm when they reached adult age. So my great-grandfather, being the second oldest, didn't have a farm. So he ended up coming to the United States. He ended up somehow in Idaho in 1895, and he homesteaded on the Camas Prairie. So my son, Christopher, just uh, is the father of two identical twin girls. Yeah. So the gener- it's continuing. 160 years ago. And we finally got another set of twins. There you go. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, so for you don't know, uh, uh, Chris is here tonight, and he has two twin daughters. Well, I guess you have twin daughters. You know, two twin daughters. We brought them, no, not yeah, two not, twin Not four. <laughs> and we brought them to the bar at, at three weeks here, old. They're here at the bar tonight, right? And their names are? Uh, Georgia and Mabel. Nice. Very good. Wait, so, wait. Cheers So to we that. didn't continue the tradition of the first and middle, middle and first? Yeah. Uh, my, I wanted to, but my wife shot that down. <laughs> oh, all right. I think in 18... Frederica Wilhelma. <laughs> in 1895, there were only three male German names. It was... Friedrich Wilhelm and Hans. Yep. So, you know, yeah, that's yeah. kind of it, right? Yeah. <laughs> they already had a Hans in the family. Exactly. <laughs> so. Nice. Uh, so you, you both are, uh, I, I would imagine what you've grown has changed over the years, or is that, how, how does that work from, from what the farming used to look like back in the late 1800s to, to now? How, how has the farming changed and what you've been farming? Well, I can't even imagine what my great-grandfather endured just trying to keep a homestead afloat. Uh, They went through the Depression. Uh, He had five sons. So the five sons were able to pay the property taxes and keep the debts current. And uh, and then uh, through World War II and afterwards, it, it kind of filtered down to, I think I had three or four uncles that then farmed. And then my brother and I started farming together uh, when my dad retired in 1990. And then my brother retired a couple years ago. That's when Christopher and his wife, Natalie, became my wife and my partners. And so uh, it's, you know, it's a typical story. It's become much more modernized technology. I think a lot of the crops we grow are similar. Uh, they grew winter wheat on the Palouse and on the, in Idaho and the Camas Prairie. At the turn of the century, they grew barley. Uh, pulse crops such as peas, lentils, and chickpeas were introduced in the 1960s, and canola was introduced in the 1990s. But, uh, you know, a lot of uh, the ancient grains that uh, 
some companies are seeking and some consumers are seeking now were probably grown around the turn of the century in the Palouse and the Camas Prairie. And, you know, a lot of those lineages are the, are the parentage of what we grow now. So just, I wanted to mention, a, a lot of the diseases that we fight in barley or wheat or peas or lentils or canola, um, those diseases haven't changed. They've been around forever. And so a lot of the crop rotations, um, you know, you get out of a, a fall-planted grain for two years in order to increase the yields. And a lot of those changes that you would assume you would see over time haven't because they, they understood this. There was you know, fairly good agronomy. They understood how to control diseases without chemicals at those times because they didn't have them. And so really, I don't think that's changed a lot. Maybe the plant breeding has changed. So we've, we've uh, adapted better varieties or bred better varieties. But for the most part, I think the uh, crop rotations and the plant types are the same. The, the biggest change has been uh, for 100 years, we've been eroding soil off the, the hilltops of the Palouse and the prairie with tillage because that was the only tool farmers had to kill weeds. And we've sensed in the last 20, 30 years have developed techniques to uh, not use tillage for weed control, and that keeps the soil on the hillsides and out of the rivers and the salmon habitat. So what brought you into growing grains for the craft beer industry? And then can you talk a little about the grains you're growing and how you choose those specific bridles to be malted? I think um, the passion that I've had and that I've shared with Nate, so Nate and I have done business together for a long time, uh, me in a role as an agronomist and him as a farmer customer. Um, but I think our passion has always been, and when Chris came along it was the same thing, is we really just want to know where our grain's going. We're, we're sick of hauling grain into the elevator and dumping it in a pile with, you know, a thousand other farmers and just, you know, there it goes. And it, so we wanted to just bring something along that we could, you know, actually see the fruits of our labor and actually taste it and, and smell it and um, have a, a story to tell with it and share it with other people. So I think that's um, really what brought me into it for sure. Yeah, and, you know, for us it was just the same. We're trying to get a more connection to the crops that we grow after we spend a year, you know, worrying about the weather and the markets and like a lot of businesses. But you spend a year doing that, and we'd like to see where it ends up and uh, how it affects people or, you know, businesses. And that's just very rewarding. Um and just, you know, and it's a business, too. So, you know, we're trying to add value to our products uh, on our farms. It's very cyclical. Um, you know, when in down cycles, um, that's when <laughs> farming is, is about, it's not about ramping up in the, in the good times. It's about surviving the, the, the bad times, right? Like a, lot of, like a lot of things. And so if we can find products that add add value and diversify us that just helps us in those low cycles too um you and you talked a little bit about you have a unique partnership um that's not all that common i guess right within the the farming industry uh how and why did you guys become partners and what's the benefits that have come from it well as matt said he was our he was my farm's agronomist with, with my brother and i from about 2010 through 2015 until he went into the the barley industry uh, full-time 
Maybe, maybe we need to explain for people listening. Yeah. What, dis, I mean, agronomy. Can you go what, into that? Yeah, what's an agronomist? Why does a farmer need an agronomist? Matt spent every waking day from April 1st through July 31st wa- riding through farmer's fields on the Camas Prairie and helping them control weeds and insects and disease. And it's a, it's a tough job because a lot of those days it's not very nice weather and yet you still got to cover the acres. So agronomist is somebody who helps us uh, control the pests and helps us maximize our crop quality and our crop yield with their expertise. Because we, you know, we got to do so many things as a farmer, we can't be experts in nutrients or experts in weed control. So we, we hire people like Matt Holliker who have that expertise and, and do that every day. You see, there you go. That's I figured an agronomist was more like a farming economist. And he sits at his multi-computer screens, and well, he looks at it, and he goes, I know what's going to make you the most money. Matt was never never Soy shy beans. about giving us advice on economics. You know? Okay, all right. He, he always wanted to give us opinion on that, too. Good, all right. We say, well, Matt, you know, yeah. You have an agronomy degree, but you don't have a master's degree in economics. So okay, let's stick. Right. To, let's, let's stick, stick to, to the pests, okay? All right, all right. But we we got through that with Matt. <laughs> so I thought it was about the psychiatry of grains. <laughs> yeah, you go out there and make sure you know the yeah. grain, what he's, the grains are feeling. He's a grain whisperer. You grain speak to whisperer. the grain. Yeah. Yep. Matt made our crops feel better. Just his right. presence right. in the field. Didn't matter if there's six row barley or two row. Hey, still or, or four row. I was, you know, like Matt, the, emo- I was the emotional support dog for <laughs> farmers for on crops. the Camas Prairie for uh, 10 years, maybe 11. Agronomist. C, farming support dog. <laughs> so we had, a, we had a history and uh, a trust, and we knew Matt was a man of integrity. My, my brother and I had, uh, had tried this business model back in 20, or 2001, 2002, where we had tried to uh, maybe provide malt barley to the industry on a batch basis with a, with a farming story behind it, but there weren't any small malt houses then, and it just never took off. We just couldn't get it off the ground, and we just kind of left it lie, but we communicated that vision to Matt, and he knew what it was, and when he got in the barley industry, uh, he really learned a lot about the industry and how it worked, and he took that vision then, and he asked Christopher and I uh, about a year ago, he needed partners, and he wanted our help in helping him build this vision of uh, a farm to brewery business model that, that we could control every process. And when a, when a brewery or a malt house needs a barley at certain spec, we, they know they're going to get it on time, the right quantity, right spec, and if something goes wrong, they know who to call because there's nobody else involved besides us. We're responsible for the barley from the time we plant it, nurture it, harvest it, store it, ship it, clean it, and deliver it. It's our baby, and they know who to, who to call when there needs to be problems that are, need to be solved. So then how you, uh, you're pretty well known for your genie. Can you talk a little bit about that bridal and then others that you are producing? And then also, how did you come upon... Growing Genie, how does the choice made to, to go there? So actually when I left the Camas Prairie, I started, I started into a, uh, working with a company um, called Highland Specialty Grains who actually purchased the barley germplasm from Monsanto. 
Uh, Monsanto actually had a pretty robust uh, barley program. It was mostly food barley and malt barley um, and some feed barley. But um, for some reason, nobody wanted to buy food from Monsanto. So they divested that germplasm to Highland Specialty Grains. And I worked for that company. We launched a food barley program in the Pacific Northwest. And um, basically, I handled the grower end of that where we we took these varieties of grain that didn't perform exceptionally well. They were bred for other areas like Arizona or Montana, and we grew them in the Palouse and processed them as far as cleaning, um, shipping them, that kind of thing. So that's kind of where I learned to do that part of the business. Um, so anyways, because we were in the industry, you get to look at everybody's stuff. So we're you know, doing um, variety trials. So we go out and plant, you know, maybe 50 different types of barley in a field and we harvest them. Everything's treated the same. We harvest them and then we look at what performs well and what doesn't perform well. And then we start looking at the traits and how the traits of the barley and what would work well in a dry year or a wet year or whatever, because we're dryland farmers. We can't rely on anything except what mother nature gives us. So we, through that process, one of the varieties that we looked at several times was Genie. Genie came from um, a company called Lima Grain, uh, which it marketed in the United States as LCS. It's the largest farmer-owned cooperative in the world. Um, they bred this variety. It has a lot of French parentage in it. And the, what, what we saw about this variety um, is it has a low protein gene. And protein, um, I, I'm not a malt guy. like. Brian, who just walked in. Hey, Brian. <laughs> Brian, uh, he could speak more to it about what protein does to beta-glucans and malt and what it does to um, flavors. And, and the probably the biggest thing is, is that um, a kernel of barley is either it's starch or it's protein, and starch is what converts to alcohol. So as the protein goes up, the conversion to alcohol goes down. And so you want to have a nice, um, you know, low protein. So you want to be in a 9 to 12% protein range. That's going to give you your highest extract. And it's also going to give you your, the, your best beta-glucans, and it's going to give you um, probably your best flavors, I would imagine. And so anyways, this variety consistently performed where the protein didn't seem to affect how it malted. Um, and it was also the first barley variety that was bred for the craft malt industry in general. A lot of these other varieties are bred to go into, uh, you know, huge batches of beer that are being made from commercial, big commercial brew houses. And this variety was specifically made to fit a, a pretty wide scope in craft malting. So anyways, I started with that variety um, mainly just from that feature is the low protein gene because we could actually push it for yield. And what I, what I mean by pushing it for yield is we could go out and apply higher rates of fertilizer. Uh, we could go out and plant it earlier and really maximize the, the yield coming off of the field and, and not, you know, be um, at the mercy of the protein. So that's why we chose Genie. We started with that variety. One of the things that we've seen over the course of this last year that's been probably the, the toughest year as a farmer that I've ever experienced, and not just financially, but also um, 
the quality of the crop has, has been, um, we, we really struggled, especially with weed on quality. But what we found about the genie is even when we did have a year like this year where the proteins are higher, it still performs in the malt house. And our partners with Link and uh, our partners with Montana Craft Malt just keep telling us, like, wow, for as bad as you told us this is going to be, it's sure malting well. And so um, we've we've had the best year we ever had as farms in 2020 and the worst year we've ever had as farms in 2021, and we're getting a consistent product. And to me, that speaks volumes of the genetics of the barley. So then you, you've kind of touched on this. Tell us a little bit about um, you have a, a company that you created together called Coldstream uh, Malt and Grain Company. Um, tell us how that started and then what the malt process looks like from the farmer's end. And, and this was mentioned a little bit before. There's a lot to get the grain ready to be malted. What does that look like? Well, uh, Coldstream Malt and Grain was started when, you know, Matt came to us a year ago and with this idea and vision of forming a farm direct supply for malt barley. Um, from our end, how it looks like is, you know, we, we plant the barley in the spring. We spend all spring and summer making decisions based on the weather primarily uh, to try to control uh, the quality and, and get the highest quality product we can. We harvest it in, at, towards the end of August. Um, we store it in bins on our farm's sites. Um, and, uh, you know, then we just begin the process of marketing it, basically. And that's primarily to malt houses, obviously. But uh, so then we just start getting in a, uh, as much as we can, a cadence of uh, shipping from our bins on the farm to cleaning facility which right now is in Laytaw, Washington, uh, takes, oh, what can we clean, Matt, about uh, 30 tons a day. And yep. so what's that look like, cleaning for people? What does that mean exactly? What's happening there? So when you harvest barley, um, the combines are, are built, the harvesting equipment is built for speed and efficiency, not necessarily getting the cleanest product. So you get a lot of stems and uh, what we call chaff, which is just, you know, stuff from the plant that's not the seed necessarily. Um, so, and occasional weed seeds too. So the cleaning just removes all of that so that you're just left with a nice, clean barley kernel. Um, so when we're done cleaning, that's when we, we may store it for a time after cleaning again before it gets shipped to the malt house, but then we're shipping it um, to the malt houses and... You know, that's kind of where our expertise ends after that. But, uh, you know, it's a year-long process after harvest once we start on that. So we, I think, to, I guess, uh, expand on what Chris is talking about, we're, when, when we clean the barley and we get ready to ship it, Coldstream Malt and Grain's role in that is, is that we, we do business with uh, other malt houses. We... Uh, provide grain for them and and we try to handle you know essentially the procurement we're procuring it from ourselves we're cleaning it we're trucking it uh, we're delivering it um, and once that tr that barley gets to the malt house I mean our goal is is to take care of everything upstream of the malt house and that that was the vision of the business um, and as we progressed along we 
we thought, you know, there's, we think there might be a little bit of a market for farm direct malt where people can buy direct, buy malt direct from the farm. And so we, uh, we, I, I won't even say that we seeked out a partnership. We talked to one person and he's sitting in the audience, Brian Estes from Link Malt. And, uh, you know, with the vision of, hey, we, we don't know a lot about malt, uh, but we know a lot about getting you the quality of grain that you need to malt it. And so we worked with Zane and Brian at Link. And, um, so there was nobody else you could talk to? You know, really, in Spokane, if you want to buy malt in Spokane, it's pretty much Brian. Tim, just because you don't like doing business with me <laughs> doesn't mean cool. I don't have That's my, cool. uh, you know, awesome. certain uh, charms. I, I, he, I guess he's like the in-between us as brewers and you as the farm. I say we just cut that dude out. I just feel bad that we're talking about Montana Malster, Malt House right in front of Brian here. I mean, I feel like, I mean, I... So I got I to gotta chime in on that real quick, and I, I know this is on a podcast, but um, Brian's done a good enough job with Link Malt that there's more demand for malt than what the um, current capacity is at, at Link in Spokane, and by quite a bit. And that's because of Brian's customer service. That's because of Brian's knowledge. And, you know, I think a lot of it, too, is just uh, Brian's integrity. And I don't mean to pump you up, Brian. But, I was going to uh, say, take him down a notch. He's, he already knows he's a genius, all right? <laughs> I know. But, you, said, you said enough when you said good enough, is basically. That's the first word you said. And that's, that's about right. We'll just edit it back to good enough. <laughs> So we, you know, like us joking around about it. Ninety percent of our, ninety percent of our, um, our vision. Brian takes care of delivering on the other end, and I think, you know, I I speak highly of Link Malt. Everybody, you know, everybody looks at uh, partnerships, and you know, where can you position yourself, and you know, we've never worried about that with Link. Like, it, it truly is. It's a farmer's own cooperative. Um, the vision is about the farmers. The support is behind the farmers. And every move that Brian makes, he talks to us about. If he wants to try to do something different, it's like, hey, what do you guys think about this? And what do you think about that? And so, you know, the sky's the limit, I think, on our partnership with Brian. Um, our goal from day one in... Um, our vision was to build a regional malt house in Spokane, and Montana Craft Malt is a is a step to get there. Um, and we are ecstatic to be, um, you know, having discussions about that with Link Malt. That's awesome. Keeping money here, keeping money flowing around Washington, and keeping a better grain product coming into our uh, mash tons. Right. And securing supply chains. I mean, you know, we hear a lot about that, and that's. That's a big deal. You know, you've talked a little bit about how drought affected Genie and how well it produces, but how, is, how does drought affect overall production of, of grains? And then also, can you tell us a little bit about salmon safe um, malt? Yeah, I mean, drought, drought just sucks. It's just, I mean, there's nothing good about drought. Um, you know, the two main things that it does that farmers care about is it, it cuts yield and it impairs quality, um, which, you know, the end user cares about quality. They don't so much care about the yield, but those are the things that affect our bottom line. And well, I guess we care about yield too, because if your yield is low, demand is high and it, it just gets passed down. So we care. 
Yeah, that's true. We'll come um, out with our sprinklers. <laughs> um, tanker truck of water. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll, we'll invest in tanker trucks. So different, different crops are affected uh, differently, but wheat and barley are, are pretty similar. You know, what happens is the kernel size shrinks, um, which affects, you know, milling, obviously. Um, the protein goes up. The test weight drops. Um, so it, it makes it harder to manage the, the stands are thinner. So there's less competition for weeds and that sort of thing. Um, pests, you know, you get more insects because they're looking for food. Uh, and you know, that's the main thing is quality and yield just drop off a cliff. Um, now salmon safe barley I'll let Matt expand on this a little bit too, but salmon safe barley is a salmon safe is a certification um, for basically following a set of practices that are deemed to be environmentally friendly and specific things that can affect salmon um, in farming, primarily pesticides um, that are available uh, you don't use, and so if you're not using those things and you're following certain practices like a robust crop rotation and things like no-till and minimum till practices, you know, which prevent uh, soil eroding into rivers and streams, um, then you can get the salmon safe certification. I'll say, so we're, the point is we're not letting glyphosate and all the other crap run off into the streams and rivers so that it can't get to our fish. If you stop erosion, then you stop the movement of nutrients and pesticides off of the site where you applied them into some stream that ends up in the Clearwater River. Awesome. And we've been doing that for our farm for the past 30 years, 25 to 30 years. That's fantastic, yeah. The, the cool thing about Salmon Safe is, like he said, you know, we got the uh, certification, and we didn't have to change a single thing that we weren't already doing on our farms. Um, and, you know, for us, it's just kind of validation, and, and it helps us market our product. It's just a way to tell the story about our product a little more easily to consumers and people that are using it. Um, so it's been cool. It's been cool working with them, and we've, uh, we've seen a lot of benefit from it. Chris, I saw your uh, question earlier about salmon-safe farming. Right. And it's much different than I thought. Like, yeah. I would expect it a... Like, I was like, I don't know how those salmon are going to farm safely. They don't even have hands. Right. No thumbs. I know. How do they use that equipment? Yeah. It makes sense. It's about farming that doesn't kill salmon. Yeah, I get it. Glad we could clear that up. Yeah, Sorry. Yeah. yeah, thank you. So Clearwater Farms was actually, I believe, the first salmon-safe certified grain farm in the United States. I think it was 2000. My brother and I got the certification. And we again, like Christopher said, we didn't change anything since that we were doing, but we we never were able to to use the certification as a brand, a part of a brand, or or something to communicate to consumers. So you were like hipster farmers because you were 20, doing it 20 30 it years ahead of our time. Yeah, you didn't have to. They came up the certification after you'd been doing it. Yeah, we were yeah. doing we were doing ninety eight percent craft malt before they even came out with yeah. the craft malt seal. So when he called us, he was like. You know, you guys qualify. You want this? I said, what's the qualification? He said, 10%. I was like, wah, wah. <laughs> we're well above that. 
We want we'll nine take of, it. We want nine of those certifications yeah. since we're like nine times. But it is nice that it appears on our can labels now, and it's on the wall next to our menu. It brings up a conversation with people that we can say, you know, we actually know who farms our grain, and now we know them personally after tonight. Yeah. Uh, I mean, some of them we already knew from different events and here and there, and Brian introduces us to a lot of them. Uh, but it is pretty impressive. It, it creates the story for the, for the end drinker that comes in, and like, this isn't just a... A, uh, a brown ale. This is a brown ale brewed with uh, the terroir of the region that you're in. Whether you're just staying in the Grand Hotel tonight or you live here. And the Camas Prairie, which is located about 50 miles east of Lewiston, and if you look on a map, the towns of Nespers, Craigmont, and Grangeville, it's got a decades-old uh, reputation for growing high-quality malt barley. In fact, Olympia Bear used to... They filmed a, lo they filmed a commercial on location near Craigmont with a couple of farmers back in the late 60s or early 70s. And if you go to YouTube, you can see that old Olympia beer commercial. And it talks about the climate because we're about 3,000 to 4,000 feet above sea level with very dark, black, high organic, mat high organic matter soils. So it's somewhat of a unique uh, climate in the whole region and it seems really suitable to malt barley. And that's, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of a it's, it's uh, helped our, governed our direction towards being a, a, a high-quality malt barley producer because that's where we're located and we can exploit that climate to produce high-quality malt barley. So salmon safe uh, for us this last year has been, you know, it's there's been a lot of marketing efforts put out from salmon safe and probably on our farm and on Clearwater Farms, it's not just about the salmon or it's not just about the trout or whatever. It's, it's really about just being uh, environmentally responsible and doing our part for climate change and all the buzzwords and, you know, to have a story to tell. Um, salmon Safe seems to be it right now. And, you know, we're, we're very supportive of what Sa the Salmon Safe organization is doing. Um, and we look forward to continuing to work with them and, and work on really bringing out that that story about it, it's we're not just protecting salmon but uh you know anything that uh cools streams uh hence the name cold stream molten grain we're trying to cool the water down we're trying to keep the water clear we're trying to do things that promote salmon but at the same time those are really things that promote um you know reduction in climate change over time so i think the certification's great but uh as Chris and Nate referenced earlier, we didn't have to change anything to be salmon safe certified because of the way we were farming and the way we have been farming. And, and we'll continue to push the envelope. Um, like we were talking earlier, I, I'm an agronomist by trade, and that is, you know, making recommendations on, you know, everything from uh, what kind of uh, fertilizer rec uh, applications to make or what kind of pesticides to use. But we also spend a tremendous amount of time talking about how do we set the ground up for the next crop um, without doing tillage? How do we control weeds without doing tillage? How do we do all these things? And, and the thing it always comes back to is direct seeding. Um, direct seeding is, you know, essentially applying seed and fertilizer into the soil in one, one trip across the field with a, a no-till drill. And as Nate mentioned earlier, they've been doing that for 30 years. Um, 
At some time, I, I can't remember, but we've uh, I've heard this said at direct seed conferences, but farmers in the Northwest have reduced soil erosion by 700%, I believe, over the last 30 years. Wow. And that's part... One of our goals, you know, through this whole thing, and Salmon Safe helps with that, in educating people about what farms are doing, is it's not just our farms, us, you know, Clearwater and Holliker Farms. It's vast majority of our neighbors. And so we're trying to get the word out that it's all of, you know, the inland northwest, and, I mean, most of the country nowadays is, is that way. How is climate change affecting your ability to farm, and... What challenges will it continue to present? I think, I think the biggest um, effects that we're seeing from climate change right now are, are government regulations that uh, are meant to change climate change that make doing what we do tougher. And I, I'm definitely not a denier of climate change. It's happening. We have a lot of really good plant breeders that are trying to stay ahead of the curve to make sure that we're growing varieties that grow in warmer climates or with less moisture or are more nitrogen use efficient or things like that. But I think really the, the way that climate change gonna, is going to affect us going forward is we're going to start seeing a transition of areas where maybe North Dakota, for instance, has been a barley growing region that um, they're expanding corn acreage into North Dakota and barley acres are dropping. So um, barley has always been something in my career that the acres keep dropping and the demand keeps going up. And so we're going to see things like that. We're going to see uh, areas like the Skagit Valley where they're, they're growing somewhere in the neighborhood of maybe 10,000 acres of barley in the Skagit Valley. At some point, we're probably going to see uh, row crops being the predominant thing grown in the Skagit Valley because they're getting the rain that will you know, make those crops successful. So really, we're, our focus is plant breeding, uh, trying new varieties, trying new farming practices that um, cool the soil. Uh, there's Direct seeding is, is hugely efficient as a farmer. You're, you apply the seed and the fertilizer all in one trip. It reduces, you know, erosion and all these other great things. But probably the biggest benefit actually of direct seeding is we're, we're able to cool the soil. So by having residue on the surface, that, that black soil isn't absorbing heat from the sun and it's making a, a more impactful environment for soil microbes that convert nitrogen and um, provide critical roles in, in cell division and things like that within the plant. So I think really um, we're doing what we can to address climate change as we go. We're a small snapshot in that, that whole you know, picture. This is a thousand year process or a 500 year process or whatever and our, our careers are gonna be you know, 40 or 50 years. And so we're not seeing a lot of it, but you know, things have changed um, in my career. I, I think I started doing this in 2004. I, I started as an agronomist in 2004. I've been farming since 2000 three maybe and you know things have changed a lot we we have more wind than we've ever had um, wind erosion in the Palouse is you know quite dramatic and people keeps I, I hear people say this all the time well the wind blows here like it like it's never blown like this here and 
it's like, well, it did at some point because we got all these hills that this dust blew in here. So, I mean, at some point we did have all this wind, but it is definitely getting windier. We're getting rains at different times. We're getting um, all these things that are changing. And what is changing it? Um, you know, a lot of that is, is climate change. Is it, is it warming? Is it cooling? I'm not sure, but it is definitely climate change. And it is definitely impacted by um, the human race being on the Earth's surface. What's, uh, what's something people need to know about farmers? Boy, that's the toughest question I've ever heard. What have you guys... Farmers are kind of... Farmers, just in general, don't want people to know anything about them. They're very, they're very private, private individuals, most of us. But, no, I mean, I, I think that, uh, for me, the biggest thing that I want people to know about farmers that I think they don't know or might, you know, think something different than how we actually are is just that, us and all of my neighbors and every farmer I know cares about <clears throat> cares about the land and uh, the earth, really, and the environment and how we affect it because we r rely 100% on it to be successful, you know? And that's the ground and the air and the water. And so I just think that sometimes we kind of get a little bit of a misconception about us that, you know, we're just kind of hicks and hillbillies and are stupid. And <laughs> I think that's changing, but, uh, farmers care about, about the land and about the earth probably more than anyone you'll ever meet. And I, I would add to that. So I've been farming 30 years and my wife will attest that as a farmer, you wake up every morning and you look at a weather forecast. And it doesn't matter if it's December, March, or August. And you, your, your whole life revolves around the weather. And, you know, can we go, we want to go away for the week. No, I can't because the weather's going to be nice. We've got to catch up on this and that. And your, your whole life is governed by the weather. So we're very perceptive about the changes that are are occurring, and we're, uh, we realize, you know, that it, it, there's so much randomness in what we do. And I think that, you know, sometimes farmers come across, when it comes to climate change, come across as like, you know, we act like, well, we, you know, we don't need to change anything that we're doing. And I think that, that doesn't come from a spot of not caring. It comes from a spot of humility because we, if we could change the weather, <laughs> if we could in any way control just an ounce of the weather, we would be doing that, you know? So we, it's coming from a spot where we base every decision we make on the weather and we follow it, you know, like every morning. It's the first thing we wake up and look at. And we just have a lot of experience with knowing that we cannot control it. I always think of that Paul Harvey, you know, farmer. And now the rest of us. Yeah, story. I always think of the Paul Harvey farmer, you know, thing that he did. And th there is some truth to that. Like, you see people getting accolades for, you know, CEOs getting accolades for bringing a business out of financial ruin or, you know, 
certain things like that. And I've worked with enough farmers over my life that, you know, honestly, every five or six years, farmers are bringing themselves up from the ruins. They're, they, they have had a tremendous financial collapse or they've had really tough luck or whatever. And so, you know, I'm, I'm proud to say prior to being a farmer, I'll just speak as an agronomist, like some of the smartest people I know are farmers. They're financially smart. Uh, some of the best scientists I know are farmers. Some of the best um, PR people are farmers. So that's the one thing I'd like people to know is just that, you know, everybody looks at farmers like, oh, they're getting government programs and they're this, they're that, they're everything else. But, you know, very intelligent group. And the Pacific Northwest has some tremendous farmers. Most of the farmers in the Pacific Northwest aren't, um, weren't handed down, you know, corn silos or they weren't handed down, you know, 10,000 acre farms in Iowa or whatever. Most of us um, come from humble beginnings. Um, you know, I think, I think Nate and his brother Steve had a really, you know, they, they had a fairly easy transition into farming because their dad was a farmer, but I don't think there was anything easy financially about it. I don't think there was anything easy operationally about it. I think they've, you know, worked their way to a place where um, it got easier over time. And, and, and I'm the same way. I started in it the same, same way as I had the opportunity because my dad was a farmer, but nothing was handed to me. Nothing was, um, you know, handed to me on a silver platter. And I think Chris is the same way. I mean, he, he come, came in and he bought his uncle out and, you know, and every morning he's got to wake up and figure out how to pay the bills. Well, Matt, Chris, and Nate, it has been a true pleasure talking with you and the exciting things happening at Holocker and Clearwater Farms. Thank you so much for joining us for Not My Beer. That wraps up, wraps up the first part of our show. We'll now take a break and be back in a few with Matt, Chris, Nate, and Tim, and Dave, and an audience contestant for a little game we call Beer Limericks. Welcome back to the brew house stage at Mountain Lakes Brewing Company in downtown Spokane, Washington. This is Wheat Wheat Don't Tell Me, Spokane's craft beer, live audience, show, and podcast. I'm Dave Basaraba, and here is your host, Chris Sindrick. Thank you, Dave. And now the game where you have to listen for the rhyme. It's called Beer Limericks. We've asked an audience member to step up for the challenge. Hello and welcome. Tell us your name and a little bit about yourself. Hi, my name is Casey Bowers, and I am a replant to Spokane. I grew up here uh, in the 60s and 70s, moved away for high school, college, and career number one and two, maybe, and um, moved back here to Spokane, came home after Yay! 40 years. Yay! Hell yeah. Yeah. And uh, I'm discovering... Um, from hanging around with my husband, who's a big beer lover, that beer's come a long way since those uh, kegs of animal beer at University of Washington frat row parties when I was a student there. So a greater appreciation for beer in the last three or four years. Nice. Well, did. welcome. We're very excited to have you. Here's what we're going to do at this point in the show. Dave is going to read three beer-related limericks with the last word or phrase missing from each, if you can fill in that last word or phrase correctly, in two of the three limericks, you will be a winner, free beer and a pint glass. Are you ready to play? Always. 
So, Casey, your limericks tonight deal with local farming. Here is your first limerick. We toast any farmer named Charlie. We cheers any farmer named Carly. But let us be clear. We so love our beer and any farmer growing local. Barley. That's correct. Ah, yes, we do love all those local farmers in the Inland Northwest producing those amazing grains that will become your delicious local craft beers. Cheers to you all. Casey, here is your second limerick. Harvesting now can be done in no time, which most farmers tell you is just fine. Reap, thresh, winnow by hand. Once took 30 men, now are all done driving a... Well, I know it's not plow, because plow doesn't rhyme with the first uh, two lines of the limerick. So I don't it's know. not Maserati either. <laughs> it's not Maserati. Um, so I know that you use plows. And, and tractors. Tractors and, and uh, threshers. And they have a demolition derby in Ritzville every year with, with these. Oh, see, I'm new to this side, remember. Um, not divide, but... So, ein, so, ein. Ein, so time, fine, combine. Yes, a combine is named for combining three harvesting processes, reaping, threshing, and winnowing. And when a combine reaches end of life, demolitioning. Have you, yes. So have you, have you ever had a combine or know anybody has done a combine in the Lind Demolition Derby? So uh, Nez Perce, where we're where we're from, actually, we have our own Combine Derby as well. Ooh. It's not quite as popular as the Lind Combine Derby, but I think it's definitely more redneck than the Lind Combine Derby. Oh. What makes it so? What's, what's that key factor, redneck factor that you have? Well, uh, it's in Idaho, for one. Okay. <laughs> All right. Oh, so now it's a challenge. You right. don't think the Lind Combine demolition can be as redneck? I challenge you. Ours is done at the I county you fair. To bring something. What they need is an Idahoan. Yeah. So what? Uh, I don't think it got canceled for COVID either. <laughs> <laughs> because it doesn't exist in Idaho. Yeah. Right. Skipped right over it. It's amazing. Now, when when is that combine held? Uh, when is that derby? Last weekend in September. It's at our county fair. Okay. Nice. More redneck. All right. Very good. <laughs> That's like the slogan on the T-shirts. Our demolition's better. More redneck. Yeah, we're more redneck. <laughs> so these guys make so much money farming on the Camas Prairie. When they get done with harvest, they take their $600,000 combine. And wreck it. And it's the last week of harvest. When they get done, they go in and slam them together. That's great. And then spend all winter fixing it. <laughs> They're defending. All right, all right. Well, Casey, here is your third limerick. Please don't forget where you are. Local regions can vary near and far. In French, sense of place is a fancy way to say local flavor is found in... Beer? Um. <laughs> well, it rhymes with you are. You are. And far. And far. And it's a fancy word. It was mentioned maybe once earlier. This one, you're already a winner. Okay. Um, hmm. I did hear a few words that I'm not familiar with. Okay. I usually do when I come to places like this. Um, 
It's French for like from the earth and from the earth. I don't know who the hell put a French word in this. Yeah, I took yeah. three years of Japanese. I don't know. Chris, it's, so it's, come on, Chris. Get, get, Chris, what's the Japanese word for terroir? Uh, <laughs> oh, 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 oh! I know. Oh, terror. Oh, <laughs> there it is. She got it. Yes, as Coldstream Malt says on their website, the flavor, texture, and smell of our malt comes from the soil. Every field that we grow barley on has a unique story, kind of the essence of terroir. Um, grain terroir, that a thing? Is it, is it truth, and how do you know? I definitely think there's some, uh, definitely some science behind terroir when you look at soil pH, organic matter. Um, but probably the biggest thing is, is how the grain is <clears throat> handled in the from a nutrient standpoint, is probably the biggest um, change you can make in flavor. Well, Dave, how did Casey do on our quiz? Oh, Chris, three for three. We're giving her a win. There you go. <laughs> Casey, thank you so much for playing. We'll now take another break and be back in a few with Chris, Nate, Matt, and Tim, and Dave, and a little game we're calling Farmers on Tap. Welcome back to the Brew House stage at Mountain Lakes Brewing Company in downtown Spokane, Washington. This is Wheat Wheat Don't Tell Me, Spokane's craft beer, live audience, show, and podcast. I'm Dave Basaraba, and here is your host, Chris Sindrick. All right, and now a game we're calling Farmers on Tap. Throughout the night, our audience members have had the chance to write down a question for one. A few are all of our panelists. We've chosen a smackerel of them to ask our panel to tap into some of that farmer knowledge. Let's get started, shall we? So here's a question. Any other barley varietals you are looking into raising? So I think we're looking at every variety that's out there that's multiple. Um, the, one of the probably dirty secrets of um, the state of Washington is, is that WSU has hired one of the best malt barley breeders in the country, um, Robert Bruggeman. Um, and he's got a lot of varieties that he's brought with him from his previous employment, and he's got varieties that he's breeding brand new at WSU. We're taking a look at everything. Um, right now, we don't know that there's anything that can replace Genie um, from its, you know, end-use qualities, but I think we're looking at uh, we're looking at varieties like Franson, which is a I, I believe it's a Ukrainian variety. We're looking at um, a couple of the other Lima grain varieties that they've bred to replace Genie. That that would be Odyssey. Um, we're we've considered doing a fall planted barley variety, um, but for the most part, it's uh, really when we talk about terroir, we feel like. Genie brings out the best flavors of our soils and our farming styles and our um, environment. So going forward, you know, we're going to keep an eye on every variety. We're going to do variety testing on the farm. We're going to um, do small batch um, malting at, at Link to really see what we can bring flavors out and do some distinctions that way. And we're really going to try to support Washington State University and the investment they've made, not only in Bob, but also in uh, 
the the brand new malt lab in Pullman, which you know there's four or five malt labs in the United States, and uh, we now have one in Pullman, Washington. No, oh. and so when did that start? When is this all pretty recent? Yeah, I think October first, right? Um, Aaron McLeod from Hartwick College, who's the gold standard for malt labs in the United States, came and. Um, I, I don't know the exact specifics of it, but I, I believe that they have to run a, a number of samples through the lab, and they all have to be within a certain percentage of what uh, Hartwick's college, Hartwick College's um, specs are. So they take a grain sample, split it in two, run it at Hartwick, run it in Pullman, and it has to be within a certain percentage. And so I, I'm, I think it's thousands of samples. I mean, it's a st- it has to be be statistically sound and so they do that and WSU passed that Um, they've got the top of the line equipment the Washington Barley Commission and the grain associations in Washington have um, funded that from dollars that we pay into uh, an assessment so every pound of grain or ton of grain or whatever we're paying a certain we're paying I believe in Washington it's three percent so three percent uh, of the value of our barley, we're paying back uh, into the assessment to do things like build malt labs, fund uh, breeders, and uh, to do research uh, to further the industry. Yeah, and I think that's kind of a uh, one of the advantages of, or something we're trying to do in our business models, be able to try different varieties, you know, that we get feedback from Brian and other malt houses and brewers too, you know, what are you guys hearing? What are varieties that you guys would like us to try? And we have the ability to go out and do it on a small scale and get it, you know, get it to you in in one year, basically. Nice. So the grain we malted in with this morning is one-year-old, or we mashed in with. What'd you, what'd you malt with? Well, we had uh, Genie Pale. Mostly and, Genie uh, Pale in this bill. Lion Munich, yeah. Lion Munich. Okay, so that's, yeah, that's from 2020. So that's good stuff. Yeah. Oh, All right. Is. All right. That's some good shit. I was, yeah, I was <laughs> knee deep in it, in the mash. So one of the things that, that we're probably most proud of in our, our business model is every bag of grain you have is going to have a farm of origin on it. Um, a lot of malt companies don't do that. We're able to do that because we're two farms and we know exactly where it came from. Um, if you ask Chris or Nate, they could tell you, you know, down to the quarter section of land that it probably came from. Or if you ask me, I could probably tell you, you know, the quarter of section of land it came to. But that's one of the things we're most proud of. It, nobody, nobody seems to want to... Uh, display you know down to the farm of origin but it's really important to us it's really important to link and we found over the last six or seven months that it's really important to the breeders too they they don't know where or the brewers as well they don't know where that particular piece of land is but they think it's pretty cool that we know where it came from i do too because it's not just uh 12 silos that got mixed to make sure that our you know diacetic power was even throughout the year you know (laughs) So that barley that you brewed with, uh, we raised on a parcel that's owned by the Nespers tribe down on the Camas Prairie. Um, you making this up, Chris? No. no. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
True story. <laughs> that field was the highest yielding field of barley we've ever had on our farm. Wow. And that's after a bunch of deer ate about two acres worth of it. Wow. Hope you shot them and ate them. If you see any little round brown nuggets, <laughs> those are just a, they're a byproduct of the malt process. What's your favorite beer uh, with, your, with your own grains? What's the best beer you've had with your own grains? So, I, this vanilla cream I'm drinking is probably my favorite beer right, right now. Right answer. <laughs> Word to your mother. And, and then Bud Light's a close second. <laughs> Bud Light. What? They, what? Do you have favorite beers? I, I actually have a favorite beer, and it, it's just a, it's a recent um, taste, but I'm, I'm a big fan of Varietal in Sunnyside, Washington. Um, the Mysteries of Bacchus is probably one of the, my favorite beers that I've ever had. I also really enjoy um, uh, some of Yaya's beers. Um, probably... As of tonight, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Mountain Lakes Brewing. Honestly, I, I really like everything we've tasted so far tonight. has been great. Um, Joke's but... on you. We've just been serving no lie. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> I'll edit that out. It's okay. It's okay. But now, and you've been drinking what, Matt? You, uh, the Oktoberfest? I've been yeah. drinking Oktoberfest, which yeah. I, I think Woo! has some lion and some genie both in it. Um, but I'm a, I'm a big fan of, uh, like kind of the new style IPAs and um, Did there's just certain brewers that you you get to know and like you can actually taste you know that's the funny thing is you guys ask about grain and things like that but you can taste brewer styles and when you know the grain now and you know the brewer and you're sitting there going yeah this is pretty cool and that's one of the probably the, the best things about this is I've I've got to meet so many people and you get to feel their style and understand it. And you can, you know, I, I actually, um, so the story about Varietal, probably one of the reasons I'm, Varietal is one of my favorite breweries is, is like, I had Chris Baum from Varietal sat there and gave me like a 20 minute synopsis about the grain and how he could taste what we were doing in the grain and things like that. And you're sitting there and, and as much as you're like, oh, Chris is a super nice guy and he's just trying to like make me feel better about it. It's like, you start thinking about what he's saying and it's like, you can. And when you have malt forward beers and you have somebody that really wants to highlight that, which you guys are doing an exceptionally good job of, um, it, it really makes you uh, think, wow, uh, malt is so important. It's not just about converting alcohol. It's about so much more than that. And anyway, so I'm like, like I said, new, new age, I, I call them new age. I think everybody else calls them new England or, or West coast or whatever. I mean, there's so many different IPAs, but I'm not a big hop guy. Um, I like hops, but I, I really just enjoy grain forward with a little bit of hop. Good stuff. Yeah. That's, that's Tim and I have, since we opened, we, we've just really been sort of malt forward. We're more English style. Uh, brewing techniques, but I think it makes better beer. Yeah, and you but, and you can't really choose to be malt forward unless you have good malt. So that's yeah, you know that's a testament to you guys. So good work. Here's a question: Do you have any farm animals? We have three cats. Is that a question for me? 
Does that count? Three cats? cats? Three cats. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> used to? We used to have uh, 4-H hogs that my son Christopher and his siblings raised in the 4-H program. And a dog or two, but no, we haven't been big into livestock on our farm. We've been big into crops. But crops. You got any, Matt? Any? Yeah, we raise a few cows for locker beef and, and that type of thing. And, but uh, we're not a big production livestock operation. Do you have, do you have names? This, that was asked on here, too. Names. My kids usually name them. Um, That's great. They form a bond with them, right. and then you yeah. slaughter them. And then they eat them. <laughs> this is rare, and this is medium rare. Yeah. <laughs> what it is. What is winter wheat? Winter wheat is a, a wheat that has been bred to vernalize in the fall, go dormant, survive through the winter, and then reemer, uh, perk up in the spring and produce grain that summer. So it's, it's bred to uh, go dormant to survive the super cold temperatures did you of say, winter. Did you say vernalize? Vernalize, yes. That's a... Ask the agronomist. Ask Matt the agronomist to Uh-oh. to explain vernalization. It's a cold tolerant process. Do you want me to get a chalkboard? Do you want me to get a chalkboard, Matt? No, that's okay. <laughs> so vernalization is is essentially it's the ability for a plant to harden off to the to acclimate to the winter climate. So um, a spring wheat variety, when you plant it, is tolerant or is not tolerant to frost. A winter wheat variety. Essentially, I think it's. Uh, I think the wheat has to get to sub twenty degrees for a certain amount of days, and when it gets sub twenty degrees for a certain amount of days, then it's able to survive um, essentially down to about fifteen negative fifteen degrees without wind. So, Fahrenheit. Fahrenheit. So the advantage to growing winter wheat in our region is is that we grow legumes, and um, we're able to plant our winter wheat in the fall on the legume stuff. And the winter wheat uh, spends about 350 days accessing moisture, growing roots to access moisture. The Pacific Northwest, um, at least in, our, in the Palouse and the Camas Prairie, probably more so the Palouse, in some cases we have 20 feet of topsoil, so we've got the ability to access moisture to 20 feet. Wow. The Camas Prairie is not 20 feet of topsoil. They're probably more like 4 to 5 feet of 8 horizon um, But... Anyways, nonetheless, it gives the plant the ability to root to a deeper level to access moisture, nutrients, and things like that. And as a result, it ends up with more yield of grain. You know what I mean, Vern? I know what you mean, Vern. So we grow uh, winter wheat, winter canola, winter peas. The Pacific Northwest has a comparative advantage for winter crops because our summers are hot and dry, unlike the Midwest, which gets a lot of summer precipitation the, the northwest doesn't you know our julys and august are very arid so if we can plant a crop in the fall canola wheat or peas it has a longer growing season to produce seed before that hot dry arid climate uh kicks in in july it, uh, we did limericks earlier but are there any favorite limericks that you have as uh, you'd like to share well, it takes a while to come up with a, with a new limerick. And so by the time we, my son and I came up with this, the limerick uh, episode of the podcast had already ended. But if you'd like, we'd 
we will share our limerick with you. Yeah, we, we would love, love this. this. It's not too late. Yeah. No. Do. Okay. And, yeah, we, this is the first time ever. We, we might change the whole I'll format of the show. It up. There once was a farmer from the prairie whose face was excessively hairy. He loved to grow barley and songs from Bob, Bob Marley and beer from the local craft brewery. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I think that's more like farm boy poet. Than it yeah, is a limerick. I, I but. See a oh yeah, maybe talk. we. Well, folks, it's closing time. When navigating life and the balance between consumerism and conservation, it's important to recognize the systems that encompass each. A consumer can loosely be defined as one who takes, where a conserver can be seen as one who takes care of. Maybe we should all be a little more driven to be conservers over consumers. Perhaps the first step is for us to get to know our local farmers and identify where our produce and goods come from. Heck, let's start with beer, a pure agricultural product. Tonight, right here at Mountain Lakes Brewing Company, we're sitting next to the farmers, the maltsters, and the brewers who make our local Spokane craft beer. I'd say that's a pretty good start. Ladies and gentlemen, that's our show for the night. Thank you. Thanks to our special guests, Matt Holliker from Holliker Farms, Chris and Nate Riggers from Clearwater Farms, and thanks to Dave Basarava and Tim Hilton of Mountain Lakes Brewing Company. Thanks to our wonderful servers, Brian and Tom. And thanks to all of you for being here in this snow-covered night. I am Chris Sindrick. Good night and joy be to you all. Drink up.